With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. We are coming up on a very special anniversary, our 100th episode. And so we want to hear from you. Send us a voice memo to hola at latinatolatina.com telling us what the podcast has meant to you when you've kept going, a time you've persevered. We want to hear it all. I first met Cecilia Munoz more than a decade ago. At the time, she was known as a fearless advocate for immigrant rights. Cecilia went on to join the Obama White House, first as Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, then as Director of the Domestic Policy Council. As the administration navigated immigration reform and ramped up enforcement efforts, Cecilia was called President Obama's conscience on immigration and simultaneously accused by activists of having turned her back on Latinos. Now, Cecilia is sharing these experiences and so much more in her new book, More Than Ready. Cecilia, you did you did it. You wrote the book. Congratulations. That's the hardest part. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Are you excited? I am. A little nervous. <laughs> the subtitle of More Than Ready is Be Strong and Be You and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. Have you always been able to follow your own advice? No, not at all. In <laughs> fact, there's several times in the book when I say, you know, if I were talking to younger me now, here's uh-huh. what I really wish she knew. Because we have— I mean, lots of us have, I think of them as little voices that kind of sit on our shoulders and whisper in our ears that we can't, that we're not enough, that we don't really belong in the room that we're in. And I have those voices, and they almost prevented me from writing the book. Hmm. Why? Well, you know, so I, when I left government, I I wasn't thinking about writing a book. And a friend of mine named Jen Palmieri, who wrote a beautiful book called Dear Madam President, um... I was congratulating her on her book and telling her how excited I was because I really thought the women needed to get out there. And a lot of our male colleagues, people who I love, who are wonderful people, 
went out and wrote books and started podcasts and, and are doing great things, and I appreciate them, but their voice is a very bro-y voice. And they're kind of understood to be speaking for all of us in Obama world, mm. and their voice is not my voice. So I was telling her all of these things by way of congratulating her for writing her book, and she said, uh-huh, so, you know, like, what's the rest of the sentence? What are you going to do about this? And the little voice on my shoulder said, no, 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 no. You know, what do I have to say that anybody, that would be meaningful to anybody? And I realized, well, this is what women do, um, mm -hmm. particularly women of color, is we question whether we have something to say. And, of course, we have something to say. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, I do a ton of public speaking, especially to young audiences, and invariably— Someone comes up afterwards, and invariably she's a woman and a woman of color, who says something like, oh, thank God you said that thing, because I thought I was the only one. Mm -hmm. So once I gave myself permission to think that I had something to say, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. Like, I knew what all 10 chapters were going to be. <laughs> Isn't it funny how that works out? Yeah. Cecilia, you write, those of us with immigrant heritage often carry echoes of the choices that led our families to leave their homes and strike out for a new place. Where do those words echo in your own life right now? Oh, so my um, my parents are came from Bolivia. Kind of by accident, they came because my dad needed had studied at the University of Michigan and went back to Bolivia needing one more credit. They confessed that later. Um, they didn't intend to come, and I grew up with their feeling of guilt. that they but Things were hard in Bolivia. Things were hard for their family members. A lot of their family members came, actually. And I grew up with their feeling of remorse that they were so far away. Uh, and that had, influences how I relate to my parents and my siblings and my children. And uh, it's remarkable how this very strong feeling, which was their feeling, has been passed down to me. It's a powerful thing. You make several references in the book to therapy, but we'll get back to that because I can tell that is a person who has done some work oh, to yes. get to that point. Oh, yes. And Michigan, you grew up around Detroit. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of Latinos where you were growing no. up. Then you go to University of Michigan, not a lot of Latinos there. It's really not until you go to grad school that you're in an environment with lots of Latinos. Until I went to graduate school, most of the Latinos I knew I was related to. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Um, yeah, so then I get to California, and suddenly there's, like, street names in Spanish, and this whole huge community of Mexican-Americans and Mexicans and Central Americans and all kinds of other kinds of people, and with a history, a deep history. And I, I felt like part of it from day one, which was really interesting. I got interested in Chicano literature because it really resonated with me, and I was volunteering at a legal clinic that was providing services to immigrants, and the one of my supervisors was this Chicano guy who we used to have this long dialogue about how he thought I should consider myself a Chicana because as far as he was concerned, I was. And I'm thinking, I'm this Bolivian kid from Michigan. You know, I'm not sure that, like, I get to wear this mantle. I felt very conscious of uh, conscious of the fact that, at some level, I'm I'm kind of a professional Latina. I worked at the National Council of La Raza for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I've worked sort of in the movement my whole career, so it's a it's part of my personal identity, but also my professional identity. I wanted to write a book that was really true to my own experience, but that my family would also recognize, and that people that I came up with through my work would also recognize, which is harder to do than you think. 
I've always thought a lot about what it means to live in a democracy. If, like me, you are curious about the bigger picture political questions, you should check out the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Podcasts in the Democracy Group examine what's broken in our democracy and how Americans can work together to fix it. They look at how the government works and how we can all be more civically engaged. Each podcast covers democracy from a different angle, whether that's foreign policy, journalism, or political science, and examines different issues, from exploring the need for climate justice to uncovering corruption in Washington. Visit democracygroup.org to hear the latest Remember shows, subscribe to a bi-weekly newsletter, and gain access to curated playlists covering everything from healthcare to impeachment to climate change. Again, that's democracygroup.org. In More Than Ready, you offer some unusual advice. You say being open to discovering what you were meant to do by accident can be a good thing. (laughs) Yes. Not exactly what everyone who has a kid graduating from college wants to hear. Just accidents are okay. but And yet, accidents happen. How did you stumble into advocacy? I was very sure that I was going into what I think of as direct service. Like, that was my thing. I was aiming towards it. I, I could picture myself in an office, like, seeing clients of some sort and helping them with mm-hmm. stuff. That's why I volunteered at the legal clinic when I was in graduate school. I found myself a job with the Archdiocese of Chicago right after graduate school. And that, I was just very sure that that was my path. And I ended up— Until literally God intervened. God actually kind of in a Maybe. weird way intervened. It's a very strange story. So I'm I'm working as an organizer for, uh, it's called Parish Community Services in the Archdiocese of Chicago. And an immigration law passes. And because I have been working as a lowly volunteer in a legal clinic in graduate school, I knew a tiny bit about this law. And my boss's boss was the guy responsible for building up the legalization operation to help undocumented people become legal residents. So I was asking him questions just because I was curious about, like, how are you going to do this? Because there was a—the way that law worked, the application period started by law on May 5th. Congress decided to open it on Cinco de Mayo, you know, for symbolic reasons. And so they had to be ready to start on that date, whether the regulations were ready, whether the agency was ready. So I had questions for him, and this poor man had the cardinal breathing down his neck saying— we have to do this. Half of the Catholics in Chicago are are Hispanic, and this is our moment to show our flock that we are with them. And he, so he called me into his office and said, the Lord sent me a dream, <laughs> and I want you to lead this legalization effort. I was 24. I was in my first job out of graduate school. You do not have a legal well, No, no, I've been a, like a paralegal. You know, way in the bowels of this little organization. I'm very good at collating papers. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, and I have no management experience at all. And I also don't have mentors. So like an idiot, I take this job because I cared about what I cared about what was happening. I don't believe the Lord spoke to Father Ruby. I think he was desperate. Uh, but I threw myself into it, and it was an amazing, challenging experience, and we crushed it. But uh, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the Catholic Church, some of which I wish I didn't know. And I learned that I suck at direct service. I mean, my program did really well. There were there was a universe of people who qualified under the law and a lot of people who didn't qualify under mm-hmm. the law. And the thing that I couldn't do was let go of the people that we had to say no to because they didn't qualify. I lost sleep. I agonized. 
And I realized people who are good at this are able to live with the reality of what they can and can't do. And they are able to dust themselves off and get up every morning and do it. And I wasn't. So I, this thing I thought I was supposed to be good at that I believed in, I discovered I, I, I wasn't good at it. I wasn't cut out for it. Turns out I'm, a, I'm an advocate and I'm a structural mm-hmm. reformer. And I just didn't know until I tried to do what I thought I was meant to do and failed. And I, I tell that story all the time because I think it's important for people to know it's okay to try something and discover it's not what you're cut out for. That's how you, one of the ways that you land where you're supposed to land. You have this realization. You also realize it requires you to move to Washington, D.C. to really do what you want to do. I love the fact that part of your resistance to moving to D.C. was just that you're introverted and didn't want to make new friends. Totally. I could not be more sympathetic to that. <laughs> Thank um, you. But then you end up at NCLR f- for two decades. Yeah. When you first get there, lobbying is the type of lobbying you were doing is very much defined by men. Totally. Yes. I was the only woman in the room all the time. And so how did you have to personally adapt to meet that moment? So there's a section in the book called Sharp Elbows and Other Tools. And the it refers to the fact, I'm not actually a sharp elbows person. No, <laughs> you're not. But there was literally a point at which the group of men that I was working with that were sort of my coalition partners, we were at a congressional markup where they literally mark up a piece of legislation. And when it's over, everybody stands up and the guys stood in a circle. They formed a little huddle to, like, compare notes and do all the things you do afterwards, which are important. And I couldn't get in the huddle. And I, you know, was frustrated, went back to my boss and complained. And he said, and he, who is my height, said, you just got to just elbow your way in. It's like, it's not personal, he said. They're not, but you're short. You're a woman. You're kind of new. So elbow one of them and say, could you let me in here? And it'll be fine. And I, I did. I had to do that the next time. And I only had to do it once. Um, but that kind of stuff happened all the time. I was in a board meeting where I was 10 years younger than everybody, the only woman, the only Latina. Um, and they're making decisions about board officers. And the head of the organization pipes up and says, oh, secretary, well, I guess that Cecilia should do that job. And my first thought was, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? So... But what I remember about those things from 30 years ago now is that I didn't feel like I could. Like I, And now I think, why did I feel like I couldn't do that? I thought the thought that somebody else said, if I were giving advice to my younger self now, it would be, yeah, you can say it. Of course you can say it. Um, and to you know, give yourself the confidence to recognize that I, like, I didn't have a voice in my head saying, "You, this is a group working on immigration, and you are the only Hispanic person in this room. That gives you standing. You can either say, I'm the only Latina, and that gives me twice as much room to say what I need to say, or I'm the only one here, so I have no cover. I yeah. think that's what actually makes us nervous. Exactly. And over and over again, from that point all the way through my time at the White House, it's not just the, I might not have cover. It's also the... And I don't want to be the gadfly that is always pushing everybody so much that the next time I open my mouth, they're all going to just roll their eyes and not listen. That's the other thing that I feel like my, my radar is always going for because the whole point of being in those rooms is to be effective. And so I also feel like I was aware of not overstating my case so as not to get to the place where nobody hears you anymore because they've tuned you out. 
When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Blackness isn't just about race. I'm Deneen Milner, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. On my podcast, Speakeasy with Deneen, I dive into the beauty and humanity of blackness with people like writer Tayari Jones, journalist Demetria Lucas, and rapper Killer Mike. Listen to Speakeasy with Deneen from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Subscribe for free at gpb.org slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. When you look at AOC or Jessica Cisneros, who's you know primarying a Democrat yeah. in Texas, it feels like we are in a moment where there are more Latinas saying, "I'm ready. Yep, um, I deserve to be a part of this conversation, and I'm not going to apologize for attempting to take my seat at the table." What do you make of that? I have this combination of great pride and a little bit of fear for them, and a little bit of worry, especially in the case of AOC, that the spotlight is so shining on her. And um, and she's, I mean, she. I think she's amazing. But, but I think it is hard to live your life in that spotlight, especially when you're so young. So I have this combination of, like, super-duper proud of these women, and um, I feel like I know a little bit about what might be coming for them, and I... I have confidence in their ability to to endure it, but there's the I guess the mom part of me feels like oh, there's gonna there's gonna be some some challenges ahead, maybe some pain. Any envy? No, no. 
gratitude. Can you imagine, though, if you would have started, if you, the point you're at now, if you could have been at that point in your mid-20s? Can you imagine <laughs> if you knew that you were more than ready in your mid-20s? Yes, and in some ways that's why I've written the book is because I want all of us to know that um, and to not have to go through a few decades of self-doubt before they feel like they come into their own. Um, that's the whole reason I wrote the book. 2008, President Obama's elected. You're offered a job on his senior team, and you hesitate. Why? I said no. I did more than hesitate. I turned it down. Um, my really a couple reasons. One is my mom had recently died. Uh, she died in April of 2008. And my daughters were teenagers at the time. I have two wonderful daughters. And I was very focused on being the best mom I could be. And everybody I knew who had ever worked in the White House uh, just had turned themselves over body and soul to their jobs. And I wasn't ready to do that because of my girls. So I, I turned the job down. And your mom passing, it made it clear to you that time was precious? Like, where did that factor into the decision? It, some of it was time was precious, but also um, my mom was a more traditional mom than I am in the sense that, you know, she worked outside the home, but it was the kind of work that was super flexible so she could, you know, drive me to flute lessons and all of the things. Um, so I was already worried that I was not up to standard, uh, even though my mother never would would never say that. But I wondered. So I had that going on already. And then, you know, I lose my mother, who I was super close to, and I have this uh, huge sense of loss, which I kind of pour into my girls. And, I, like, the thing I most want them to know is that they're the most important thing. And I worry that a White House job will take over. Before you even took that job, they would call you Our Lady of the Conference Call? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that was, one of them said at one point in a moment of frustration, Mom, if you were a saint, you would be Our Lady of the Conference Call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although they also, you know, they both, their voices are both in this book. They both wrote a little section. And they don't understand what I was agonizing about. They, it's so interesting to me, and I think it's a sign of progress. They don't understand the question. They, my elder daughter found a book on the basement shelves called My Mother Worked and I Still Turned Out Okay, which <laughs> which was a Mother's Day present when they were babies that my husband bought for me. And she thought it was a joke. She thought it was hilarious. And I it that's when it sort of hit me. They don't even they don't understand what I was agonizing about. This is the part of the book that I was sitting at home at my kitchen table pumping <laughs> and crying about. If you could start for me at I have since come to terms. Yep. I have since come to terms with the fact that my house will never be as beautiful as my mother's, nor will my garden or the meals that I make. It took years, and to be honest, some therapy, to recognize that my daydreams of all the things I would accomplish were out of sync with reality. I chuckle now to think that we bought a house with a substantial yard because I had visions of myself being a gardener, like my mother. My friends threw a wedding shower for me that was focused on gardening tools, some of which I hardly ever used. After nearly 30 years, I take great pleasure in looking out at our yard, which has been a disaster for most of our time in our house and has only recently been tamed with the help of a garden service. I raised two girls with a wonderful partner and have been doing my part to make my country a more equitable and just place. I have learned to think of myself as a gardener of things other than plant life. 
I still am beating myself up oh. over all of those things. Of course you are. Please stop. <laughs> no, I want a beautiful house, and I want, you know, kids who have their hair done in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I so relate to that. First of all, I have seen you with at least your eldest, and I know what an awesome mother you are. And what you contribute to the world, it turns out, will matter to them. This is the thing. This is another reason I wrote the book is my girls are old enough I got to ask them, like, how did that go? Because I really struggled. And what they said was, what? What are you talking about? Here's what it looks like to us. You were doing good in the world. And then most days we would have supper together and talk about it. And we knew we were the most important thing because you told us all the time. Mm. And, and And you lived it. So we're kind of proud of you being out in the world. And we it also formed their sense that they should be out in the world too. Mm-hmm. So I, I get it, and it's, it's really hard because you feel like you're doing everything halfway and you don't feel like you're enough, but you are. And what you are showing them, including showing them the struggle, is really important because some, someday they will have children whose hair might be a little messy. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be okay. She would just let me brush it. It would, it would be so much easier. Okay, you're offered this job. You decline it. So they just send in the big gun, and they have him, they have President Obama call you directly. He did. My cell phone rang. It, it, this was just absolutely insane. And my cell phone rings, and it's a 312 number, which means Chicago. And I think, uh-oh. I, pu- I pull over, and it's Rom Emanuel, the incoming chief of staff, saying, you know, we're going to try to make it a family-friendly White House, and I'm going to make sure you're in every immigration meeting. And then he says, can you hold on for a minute? And the next words I hear are, this is Barack Obama. And I remember everything he said. I don't remember a thing that I responded. But he was he was completely over the top. He said, he actually said, Hillary couldn't say no to me, and neither can you, which is insane. Uh, and then he said, look, I know you're worried about your family. I understand that. I'm worried about mine, too. But um, I want you to help me change the country, and I will call your husband. I'll call your children. I will come to your house. I will make this embarrassing for you. I'm not taking no for an answer. And he actually said all of those things. And I called my husband, and my husband, I don't know if you've met him. He is, he's a wonderful man. He's also the guy who, when the stampede is all going north, he's the one who turns around and faces south and says, wait a minute, like, why are we stampeding? Let's make sure we understand this, and maybe we should be going the other way. He's that guy. So he was not on the Obama bandwagon in that way. And I called him and said, you'll never believe who just called me. And he burst into tears. And he said, you're not being offered a job. You're being called. Um, and that's kind of when I knew I had to do it. I mean, we had a family meeting, and I tried to convey to the children that like this means you're going to be taking the bus more and I won't be driving the carpool and you're just you're going to need to be way more self-reliant. And I don't you know how could they really comprehend what that was going to mean. But we it was important that we made the decision as a family. Walking into the White House, what did you think the opportunity was for immigration reform? We thought we were going to pass a bill. Um that's why he asked me to come. He made it very clear. We thought we had an opportunity to pass a major immigration reform bill that would legalize people, that would update the legal immigration system. Um, we It was going to be hard to do it in the first two years because of the economic downturn. But we were sure that we were going to get to it, and we did get to it. Um, but we, you know, we passed a bill in 2013. We nearly passed the DREAM Act in 2010. 
um, we fell short five votes. And at the time, there were 11 Republicans in the Senate who had voted for it previously. Some of them had been the original sponsors of the DREAM Act. We didn't need all of them, but we only got three, and we lost by five votes, uh, which was, you know, pains me to this day, because think of how different the world would be if the DREAM Act had passed in 2010. I recently spoke with Christina Jimenez, who, like you, is a uh, MacArthur genius. Mm-hmm. Lots of MacArthur geniuses on this podcast, ahead of United We Dream. And she talked about meeting with President Obama after the signing of DACA and how he encouraged her to organize to bring Republicans to the table while he focused on looking tough on enforcement. And she told me, I will never forget that moment because his administration ends with no immigration reform. And so it was a miscalculation also from his part and the part of the Democratic Party who believed that that could be a winning strategy. In retrospect, does it feel like a miscalculation? No, it doesn't. Um, And I worry about immigration advocacy right now for this reason. At the end of the day, in order to get the majority of the country on your side, and certainly the majority of the Congress on your side, you need to be able to convince people that whatever the new regime is, that it's going to be orderly, it's going to be fair, and it's going to have rules, and that people are going to follow the rules. Like, that's the formula for an immigration system that works, and that is the path out of this Trump wilderness that we live in. And and so that means you have to, we have to be able to talk about um, who comes in and who doesn't come in. Um, unless we're prepared to advocate open borders, which I don't think we should do, which is not where the country is, and I think it's that's probably not the right policy for the country, um, then we have to be willing to talk about where we will draw the lines and how we will enforce it. And so the, um, the, the right policy question, the policy question that President Obama worked so hard at was not whether to enforce the law. That's the wrong question. It was how to enforce the law. Um, And that's a really uncomfortable question for us in our community for obvious reasons, because we are abused by border enforcement and interior enforcement. It's it's, uh, a terrible history and an abusive one and one that we rightly hate. But the, the conversation we need to be willing to have is, how are we prepared to do this job in a way that's consistent with our values and what should the law look like? Um, And that's that conversation we can win. And right now, given how the absolutely horrible things that this current administration is doing to human beings, we have to win. We, you know, we will not be helping anyone if we don't devise a strategy that can convince the public that we will, that we can do a responsible job here. And the stakes just couldn't be higher, and people's lives are quite literally at stake. Do you wish you would have done anything differently? Yeah, sure, of course. I think it took us too long to understand um, that the 2014 crisis of unaccompanied kids was not was a was really a refugee crisis in the region. Um, so I wish we'd we'd gotten on that part sooner. We ultimately did engage in Central America, but it took us a while because we were so busy trying to find shelters for those kids. So I wish we'd done that sooner. And I think it took us way too long to um, to get enforcement policy right. We did, finally. The, the enforcement priorities of 2014, I'm really quite proud of. But it took us till 2014. It took us much too long. You have a section of the book subtitled, When People Assume You're Only There for a Little Color. Mm-hmm. When has that assumption been made about you? Oh, probably most of my career. I think. 
So there are definitely people who think that that's why I'm a, Car- I'm a MacArthur Fellow. I've heard people say that. Genius. The word is genius. <laughs> I heard people say that. Um, one of the stories I recount in the book is that one of the chief of, chiefs of staff that I served under told a couple of people who wrote books about the first term of the Obama administration that he gave them the impression that I was an affirmative action hire for the domestic policy job, um, which co- cost me a couple of years of self-doubt. And I did really spend a fair amount of energy wondering whether the people I was sitting at the table with, whether that's what they thought. Um, but I took comfort from what Sonia Sotomayor says in her book, her wonderful book. She talks about getting to Princeton through affirmative action. And she describes it as getting to the starting line of a race. And so so there you are at the starting line, but you still have to run it. Mm. And so... And they, I talked to seven other women as I was preparing this book, and they all said the same thing. It happened to them all the time, too. And they all said their own equivalent of, so you're there at the table, so you've got to do the job. Uh, you have to rise to the occasion. You have to run the race. Um, and there are people who will assume that about you, but it matters less if you know that you are crushing it. And so that's your job. When I ask other women in my life, other people in my life who are people of color, it's a pretty common experience. And it can mess with your head. It certainly messed with mine. So I thought it was worth writing down some strategies for, all right, you you have self-doubt, and you also have the doubts of people around you. And here are some strategies for confronting that and besting it. What do you think is the most effective strategy? This is why the book is called More Than Ready, right? It's, It's about the fact that the world is more than ready for what we bring to it. But also, everybody I talk to that has these moments of self-doubt says they deal with it by over-preparing, right? By making sure that when they walk into the room that they know their stuff, we're more than ready because we work at it. And we overcome our own doubts and other people's doubts by working harder, being good at it. The one thing I felt was missing from the book, and perhaps it's because it doesn't exist, is the aha moment. Mm -hmm. Because it seems you're still grappling with some of these things, even as you are encouraging me and other Latinas to go for it. There is still a part of you that has some of that inside voice, some of that self-doubt. Was there a moment that crystallized this for you? Yes, and it is the moment when my elder daughter, Tina, and I were talking about the 2016 election, and I said to her, you know, it's not like I haven't been around the block and I don't know from sexism, but even still, I am stunned by the misogyny that I'm seeing. Mm. And she said, Mom, I'm not stunned. She said, the difference between me and you is that you've been at it for so long that you're used to it. And I thought, oh, she's right. I've come to accept a certain amount of self-doubt, a certain amount of misogyny, a certain amount of racism, because it's just my reality. And she's younger, and she can see it in a way that that is fresher um, and more vivid, and it gives her a better capacity to fight against it and to call bullshit on it. So that was my aha moment. Part of what I think is interesting is that rather than embrace the portrayal of strength that we've been told is the only version of strength that can exist. You make an argument at the end of the book for kindness and for empathy as a skill set. What does it look like for someone who wants to be perceived as a strong leader, 
but also wants to embrace that kindness and that empathy. Well, this is what your book is about, right? The likability trap. I'm just, just begging you to plug it for me. No, it's, I'm so <laughs> intrigued by the interplay between my wrestling with these issues and your wrestling with these issues in your book because what you say is all true, that we are stuck in this. If we're likable, then we're then by definition, they think we're not strong or we're not smart or we're not tough enough. Um And the case I'm trying to make is, yes, that people will think that. They happen to be wrong, by the way, being likable or being kind is not a sign of weakness. In fact, it's a sign of strength. And part of the reason that I was a good domestic policy director is because I have empathy. I can read a room. I understand what everybody in the room needs in order to get to to a decision. And I know how to Maneuver so that everybody supports that decision, even if they weren't on the winning side of the argument. Those turned out to be essential skills, and they are they are not policy skills. They are empathy skills. And it's a skill set. We just don't honor it. We don't name it. We don't honor it. We don't see it as a sign of strength. But I think it is. This book is full of lessons. If there's one lesson that you want a Latina listening to take away from More Than Ready, what is it? You know so much already just by virtue of who you are. And the people that you interact with, whether it's at work or at school or wherever it is, they may not know that they need what you bring, but they do. And and if you walk in with that understanding and confidence, um, you know, you can change the world. Cecilia, thank you so much. Thank you. The lady of the conference call. (laughs) Thank you, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Cedric Wilson is our sound designer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. Manuela Bedoya is our intern. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the quickest and easiest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.